Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, back in 1911, that's a long time ago. Back in 1911, there was this stuntman named Bobby Leach, and he decided he was going to go over Niagara Falls on this specially designed steel drum. Well, he did it, and he lived to tell about it. When the impact of the water hit that steel drum, of course, he suffered some minor injuries, but he had planned really well. He knew the dangers, and he had made arrangements in that steel drum for almost every possible situation because he truly understood that this was a death-defying feat. What's interesting is, is just a few years after that stunt, he was skipping down the street in New Zealand. And Bobby Lee slipped on an orange peel. He fell and badly fractured his leg. He was taken to the hospital where he died because of the injuries on his leg. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You ever been overconfident? Everything, man, because I did the hard stuff, I got this stuff. You ever been in a place in life where you said, man, I could do that in my sleep, but then you woke up? <laughs> you ever said to yourself, I would never do that, but yet you found yourself doing it? I want you to know that we're kind of in good company if that's you. I, I know I've done that numerous times, and apparently... The believers in Corinth had become overconfident in their Christian life. They had taken those freedoms that we've been covering and they began to abuse them. They become somewhat careless and reckless in their Christian conduct and they become really passive in pursuing holiness. So Paul writes them and tells them, he says, hey, listen, folks, your overconfidence is going to be the reason you're disqualified from usefulness to the Lord. If you remember last week, we were there with Paul when he was saying he didn't want to become disqualified from the race. And so he, he told us a few things that he was doing to prevent that. So in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-12, through 12, Paul picks back up on that idea of disqualification and shares with us three ways we can avoid the danger of overconfidence. Three ways we can avoid the danger of overconfidence. And you're going to find this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. You can look in your Bible, or you can find a Bible in the seat pockets underneath the chairs, or it will be on the screen. And for your convenience, we have placed the page number of the Bibles and the chairs up on the screen so that you can find that with us. So I wonder again, would you stand with me as we read from God's holy word, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now church, I'm trying to, trying to help you and I'm trying to teach you something. But when we read the Word of God, who is speaking? Who? Okay, so we need to give that special attention, right? If you check out for the rest of the day, I'm good. But don't miss this. This is God speaking, amen? Here's what God says. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all 
ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, watch, which followed them. And the rock was who, church? Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things have happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I want you to read this last verse out loud with me. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You may be seated and may God bless his word. See, the Corinthians were secure in their lives, and they, they really thought they had arrived spiritually. I mean, they were saved. They were baptized. As we read here later in the chapters that come, we, we realize they lacked no spiritual gifts, and they thought they were very mature in their faith. In, in other words, let me tell you what that really means. They thought they could go out in their own world and face any situation and do anything and, and play around with any kind of sinful activity that was out there. Even though they wouldn't be sinning, they could get really close to it and it wouldn't bother them or it wouldn't affect them. Can I just remind you today that when a brother or sister is so confident in their faith that they think that they can handle anything, they're in danger. So then really, how do you avoid the danger of overconfidence. Well, Paul tells us, first of all, that I can avoid the danger of overconfidence by remembering God's unconditional faithfulness. Verse 1, Paul says, for. What's the for there for? Well, that refers back to the disqualification that he was talking about. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of how this could really happen to you. This helps us prepare for what's coming, and it carries with it this sense of urgency and pleading. He doesn't want us to be unaware of the danger of overconfidence. And he says that by remembering God's unconditional faithfulness, that will help you avoid that. So, so how has God been faithful? Well, first of all, he tells us we are set free. We're set free. There he says, brethren, that, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Well, he says, brethren, and that means that all those Jewish brothers and sisters specifically, and then principally, all of us in Christ. He says, hey, everyone who knows the Lord or has followed the Messiah, pay attention. Those from whom all we've inherited our faith and experience being set free, those who led us in that way are our fathers. So he says, listen, here's what's going on. After a few years of favored treatment because of Joseph... Israel, as you know, spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And, and in slavery, they were in total subjection. They were abused. They were mistreated. They were overworked. And they were really totally hated. But because of God's unconditional love for his people, God heard them and sent 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. And God led his people out of Egypt. And as they were coming out, they came to the Red Sea. 
The Lord miraculously parted the Red Sea, and a, a wall of water was on the right, and a wall of water was on the left. And they walked right through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then he guided them. He guided them by, by his presence. A cloud of his Shekinah glory would lead them by day, and a pillar of fire, which was his Shekinah glory, would lead them by night. And the Bible says that they all experienced an exodus, a leaving, a being set free. You and I know today that we were once slaves to sin, but yet Jesus underwent the judgment of the wrath of God on our sin, and for freedom's sake, Jesus has what, church? He set us free. When we think we've progressed so far that we can't possibly go back to doing certain sins, or things that we've experienced victory in will never defeat us again, Paul says, take heed, lest you fall. We've been set free. The second demonstration of God's unconditional faithfulness is this. We're shepherded. We're shepherded, verse 2. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Let me help you with something here. Baptism usually refers to the act in which water is used to symbolize cleansing of sin. It paints a picture of a death, burial, and a resurrection. I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just trying to make this applicable for you today. But for some, they read that passage that all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and the sea to mean that people were sprinkled by the cloud or they were immersed by walking through the sea. One of the problems with that is that the cloud represented the Shekinah glory of God and it turned into a pillar of fire, not a rain cloud. Furthermore, the sea was parted, and they went through on dry ground. So there's no water involved here whatsoever. So this is not talking about spiritual baptism the way that we think baptism is talked to when we look over there at that baptistry. That's not what he's talking about. They weren't baptized like that into Moses. That's not what he's talking about. Baptism is identification with Christ. Romans 6, 1 through 10 tells us that, that baptism is an outward sign of a spiritual union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So water baptism symbolizes the baptism believers have already experienced. So when we come to Christ, we're baptized into him, we're identified with him, we're made one with him. That's the inference that Paul is making. It's about identification. Being baptized into Moses means that they were identified with Moses and that he was God's chosen leader over them. They identified Moses as their shepherd. They were to submit to him, follow him, and they would be blessed if they did. You see, you and I, you know it well. We've been given spiritual leaders. We've been given shepherds to take care of our souls. First and foremost, we have been given Christ, the great shepherd. We identify with him. We're we're one in him. But yet, when we get overconfident and think that we know better than our shepherd, and we go to do our own thing, or that we don't need to go to church, that we don't need pastors or or under-shepherds over us, we don't need to submit to anybody else, take heed. Take heed lest you fall. God has set us free. He's given us shepherds. And thirdly, God's unconditional faithfulness can be seen in this, that we are sustained. We're sustained, verses 3 and 4, he says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and that rock was Christ. You got to remember that God supernaturally provided manna 
from heaven on a daily basis for the Israelites. God supernaturally provided water from a rock for them. The Lord was faithful to provide everything that they needed. And the text tells us that that rock, think about this. I don't know if you've ever caught this or paid attention to this, but that rock followed them. When was the last time you saw a rock following somebody? It was only after somebody threw it. This rock followed them. That's interesting to me. That blows my mind. That's got to be some kind of rock. Paul tells us it is. That rock was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The term is there. It's, it's not the word rock there is not petros, which means a large stone or a boulder. That, that's not the word. It's the word petra, which means a massive rock cliff. God used a petros, a, a boulder, to provide it for them on one occasion. But then the petra, the, the huge massive cliff rock of Jesus Christ, was the one that followed them their entire journey. God's unconditional faithfulness in Christ protected them and sustained his people, and he would not allow them to perish. He would not leave them nor forsake them. He followed them everywhere they went. And while the Old Testament believers did not have the indwelling of the Spirit, they had the sustaining presence of the pre-existent Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, caring for and fulfilling the needs of his people. Today, we have a risen Messiah who said he would never leave us nor forsake us, and we have the Holy Spirit who permanently indwells us. And just like the Israelites, listen, church, just like the Israelites who got tired of the manna, and, and wanted water another way. When we think we can provide for ourselves, and we know better how to provide for ourselves, and we get overconfident in that, Paul's saying, take heed that you don't fall. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, we got this dog from the pound. Went down the pound, and there she was. She was an Australian shepherd. She's kind of mixed with something else. And man, she had these, just, she was just beautiful. And, and I just looked at her and saw her and said, all right, let's take that one. Had no idea what she was going to be like. Had no idea. But I'll tell you this, the dog, she was probably about two years of age, something like that at that point. And we brought, we named her Casey. We brought the dog home. And Casey was probably the best dog we've had in a really long time. She had such a humble spirit about her. I mean, she just was submissive, just always followed us around, was grateful. It seemed like she would just eat and look at you like, thank you for feeding me. Just feel with such humbleness. She, she just never was cocky. She just never acted like some dogs acted. And here's what I really believe in my heart happened. I believe that somehow that dog knew and remembered where she came from. And she was not going to disappoint the owners, and she was going to be thankful. She was going to be thankful that she had been rescued. I think that's what Paul is trying to say here. If you begin to get overconfident and think that you're owed something, or you forget that you were really a prisoner with no one to rescue you, Somebody walked into your life by the name of Jesus Christ and he took you out of that and set you free and then began to lead you and is faithfully provided for your every need. If you begin to forget that and you get overconfident, Paul says, take heed lest you fall. 
Did you notice that the Bible says this, and every word is inspired, so I want you to see it again. He says that, that all were under the cloud, that all were baptized, that all ate the same spiritual food, and that all drank the same spiritual drink. All, all, all. All of them were sustained. All of them were shepherded. All of them were set free. This is great. Until we read the next word in verse 5. Nevertheless, something happened. Which leads me to our second point, and that is this that I can avoid the danger of overconfidence by remembering my inconceivable fallenness. My inconceivable fallenness. You see, when I get overconfident, I must take heed lest I fall. And it happened to them, and it's going to happen to us. Listen to me. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. You and I are more sinful than we can possibly imagine. And if we forget that for one moment, bad things happen. Verse 5, he says this, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now listen, I find humor in the Bible. When it says with most of them, God was not well pleased, let me tell you what most of them means. Over 2 million people came out of Egypt, but only two of them got to the promised land. Most of them? How about all of them, except two, from two million to two? With most of them, God says he was not pleased. Even Aaron and Moses, which is a word for us pastors, they didn't make it. Their overconfidence had gotten the best of them, and as a result, God says they were laid low. That word there, and it says, I want you to look in your Bibles, it says, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That is the word which we get our English word catastrophe. In other words, a catastrophe happened to them in the wilderness, if you would like the, the Steve Brown version. Laid low means to strew or to spread over. So the bodies of those with whom God was displeased were spread over or were strewn over the wilderness and it looked catastrophic. Many became unfit for service. They were vessels of dishonor, and they were strewn about the desert as potsherds, broken vessels that were no longer useful. There was a catastrophe, and the catastrophe was they forgot how fallen they really were. They had been blessed, and they were in the race, and the test of their obedience and service, when that test came, they were disqualified. Why? Because they forgot just how sinful and fallen they really, really were. They became self-centered. They became self-willed. And they tried to live on the dangerous edge of freedom they had in Christ. And by doing so, they were overconfident that they could resist the temptation and sin. And that was their undoing. So then how do I avoid the danger of overconfidence? Well, I remember my inconceivable fallenness. So what does that look like? Well, Paul says, first of all, my wants can be wrong. My wants can be wrong. Look in verse 6. Now these things happen as examples so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Paul says he doesn't want us to be unaware, he says there. He wants us to look at this example. He wants us to learn from it. And he says, so there's an example. That word is the word typos. It means a type or an outline of an event. Think about it this way. 
When you push the letter A on your phone or on your computer, it leaves an A on the page or the screen. But in actuality, there's only one A, and it's in the programming of your phone or in the keyboard. So Paul says that what's happening is, is I want you to see something that is an exact reproduction of the real thing. Paul says that this is recorded, that this is typed out, that this is to show us how sinful we are and that we shouldn't get overconfident and think that we would never sin in the ways they did. He says, first of all, that that there's something wrong with our wants. He says that that this is given that you wouldn't crave evil things as they crave. That that word crave is the word epithuo, and and it means, it originally meant a violent movement of air or water or some other substance. So the sense was really to boil up as in the smoke of a sacrifice. Thus, it eventually over time came to mean to sacrifice. The word has the prefix epi in front of it, which means upon. So here's the the idea. The sense is to boil upon. Work with me here. So here's what happens with lust and sensual cravings the things that we really want that we shouldn't. They start boiling up on us. We begin to boil over with desire, and then we cave in. In the wilderness, they didn't control their cravings, and they gave in no matter what God said. So let me tell you, here's a definition of lust, and it doesn't always have to be sexual. Here's the definition of lust. Listen to me. Lust occurs when my desire to possess something or someone becomes such that that I will want to possess that person or that someone no matter what God has already said. That's what lust is. So what's wrong with our wants? We want it even though God said we shouldn't. For some, you may be in a relationship with an unbeliever. And you know that God has said that you shouldn't be unequally yoked. But but because you want that person more than you want what God said, maybe your want is wrong. For some, I know what, you know what God says about drugs and he says about alcohol, but you want it even though God has said you shouldn't want it. For some, I like to look at things even though God has said no. So, so I know that I'm not supposed to be watching that, but yet, but yet I want to watch that, and you do. And, and the Bible says, take heed lest you what, church? Lest you fall. So don't get overconfident and say, man, I got this craving thing down. I got my warner down. I got this thing, man. I'm good. Because listen to me, church, listen to me. You are possible of wanting things that you never thought you would ever want. Paul says, not only that, but my worship can be wrong. Verse 7, he says this, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. See, you know this, as we taught about the history and the background in Corinth, idols were everywhere. Nothing was done in any fashion with some involvement or recognition of an idol. So the Corinthians became overconfident about their participation in activities where false gods were worshipped or consulted or even prayed to. They believed that they could be involved with those kind of activities without being spiritually harmed. And some, as 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 has already told us, some had even slipped back into idolatry. The text says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. The people of God had hardly gotten out of their freedom of Egypt, and they fell immediately into idolatry. 
And interestingly, they didn't have a pagan priest or a temple or an idol to tempt them or to lure them. They just made their own idols and their own ceremonies up. Exodus 32 tells the story. After Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, the people became impatient with him. They pressured Aaron, the the priest, to make a golden calf. The calf was the representation of a popular Egyptian god, and they wanted to use that to worship Jehovah. They referred to the calf as the god who had brought them out of Egypt. They had observed Apis, which was the sacred bull in Egypt, because the Egyptians believed that the god Apis incarnated the bull. So when that bull died, it was embalmed and placed in a huge sarcophagus, and you could even see it if you went to Egypt. The calf was most likely a reproduction of that. So the text says that they sat down to eat and drink. So Aaron built an altar to this idol, and he declared a feast to the Lord, and that was really Yahweh. So Aaron even offered some sacrifices that were normally offered to God. They thought they could use a pagan idol to worship the one and only true God. Their time in Egypt made them think that they could just add pagan practices to the worship of the true God. And Aaron, the priest, didn't even resist this. He even recommended, hey, if y'all want to do this, just take some of the jewelry that you got from the Egyptians and make the thing. Paul quotes Exodus 32, 6, the people sat down to eat and stood up to play. There was excessive feasting. When it says they stood up to play, that's a euphemism for sexual relationships. Those who instigated this idolatry and actions, the Bible tells us in Exodus 32, 38, that they were put to death. You see, some believers had reverted to their old ways of worship, and idols represent false gods. And let me tell you the truth, false gods are really just demons. Later in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 20-21, we'll get to in a little bit, it tells us that you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. The right God must be worshipped in the right way. Wrong worship invites judgment. Worshipping anything other than the triune God is idolatry. So listen carefully. I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm just preaching the truth. But I'm going to tell you something. Worshipping Mary is idolatry. Worshiping the saints is idolatry. Worshiping at the feet of icons is idolatry. Worshiping angels is idolatry. No matter how sincere our worship is, if it isn't to the Lord Jesus and his way, it is idolatry and it is wrong. God has forbidden it. But you need to understand today that all idols are not physical or even religious. Any concept of God that is not biblical is false. And it becomes idol worship. So those who follow man-made gods and claim to worship the God of Scripture, just as the Israelites claimed to worship God, but also did something else, it was wrong and it was idolatry. So I'm telling you, hey, listen to me. Mormons, you're idolaters. Jehovah's Witnesses, you're idolaters. Muslims, you're idolaters. Buddhists, you're idolaters. There's only one God to be worshipped, and his name is Jesus Christ, and that's the only king that we should worship. To churches, listen to me, churches, churches even, and philosophies are guilty of idolatry when they make gods of success, when it's all about numbers, when they make it, when, when they make it about social justice, if that's the only issue. 
self-image, whatever it is we promote or whatever it is we subscribe to, other than this book is idolatry. Today, many of us in this room today would not think about worshiping a wooden idol. But too many times we'll sacrifice time, family, and our standards to worship other things that we know are not of King Jesus. So when we think we would never do that, we would never have an idol, take heed lest you fall. Then Paul says, my ways can also be wrong, not just my worship. Look there in verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in how many days? While Israel was staying in this place, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women. And these Moabite women invited them to sacrifice to their gods. So Israel began to commit fornication with the daughters of Moab and joined themselves to the pagan worship of the god Baal Peor. Why, why, why? And this displeased the Lord, and judgment came from the Lord in the form of a plague, and 23,000 people died in one day. Bible says that 23,000 died in one day. In Corinth, the temple to Aphrodite had 1,000 ritual prostitutes. So almost everything that happened religiously happened in the context of some idol or some sexual act. Paul said to those Corinthians, if you're living in a culture full of idolatry and full of sexual immorality and you think you can play around with either one of them, Better take heed lest you fall. And folks, I'm telling you today, America is looking more and more like Corinth. And we as a church better pay attention, take heed lest we fall. They thought they could live around corruption without being corrupted. They they were first tempted and then they gave in to the temptation. Paul has already said that sexual immorality is to be fled from, not flirted with. Too many are just overconfident in themselves that they get into a relationship with a member of the same sex or even the opposite sex, and they say, nothing's going to happen. We, we don't, we're, we're too strong for that. We're, we're spiritually strong. We've been fasting, don't you know? So when temptations come, they think they can handle it only to find out they can't. And some go to places that are associated with immorality and think, I'm just there for the entertainment. They find themselves facing temptation and they give in. Some continue to watch things that contain sexual immorality and believe because they're mature in their faith and Christ gives them the freedom to watch such things that it won't affect them. Can I tell you today, even if you never commit an immoral act in those places or with those things, your minds will be filled with such vulgar ideas and images that your spirit will be weakened instead of strengthened. And that in itself is the sin. Christ has given us freedom to serve him better with, not to see how close we can get to sin and not sin. Take heed that you don't fall because your your ways can be wrong, but then also your will can be wrong. My will can be wrong. Verse 9, he says this, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Did you get the theme? Here's what God's trying to say. He doesn't take sin lightly. He takes it dead seriously. Numbers 21 gives a story 
God had provided manna to eat and water to drink, but they weren't satisfied. They wanted more variety. Hey, God, can you give us some barbecue? How about some toast? How about some jelly with the toast? Quail again? Can, I mean, can we get some brisket? Just not satisfied. They wanted more variety, so they complained and questioned God's goodness. And they tried God's patience. The Bible says God is long-suffering, but you better let him decide how long that is. They tested him to see if he would do what he said he would do. They spoke against God and Moses and said that Moses had only led them to the desert to die. And the Bible says in Numbers that they loathed, loathed the miserable food that God had provided for them. So God says, okay, you don't like what I provided for you to eat, then die. And God sent serpents. And the serpents bit the people and many of them died. You see, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Sometimes we use our freedoms to push God to the limit to see how much we can get out of Him. Sometimes we think that God is our servant instead of us being His. So we're often unthankful and demand more from God. Many of the Christians, they, they push their freedom to the limit to see how much the flesh they can indulge and how much they, they could get out of life. And they were trying God, and they were risking severe discipline. Today, many people think because of God's grace that we are free to do anything because God always forgives. I'm telling you what, you may not lose your salvation for getting off into crazy stuff, but I can tell you this, the serpent still bites. Because the wages of sin, as far as I know, is still what, church? And here's the truth. God's people have always lived under grace. It has never been, now we're in the age of grace, we can do what we want to do and God will forgive us. God's people have always lived under grace because every blessing anyone has ever received is because of God's grace. And when Israel put God to the test, she found out that there are certain limits that God will not allow you to cross over before he brings the smack down. Why in the world would I do that? Why would I do that? Because that's exactly what God was doing. Do you, you think 23,000 falling in one day, just like, well, you know, okay, kill a few people. The serpents are sinning. Now that sounds like God takes sin, what? Seriously. They didn't use their freedom to serve better, but demanded that God serve them better. You're saying, I would never do that. Well, as soon as that comes out of your mouth, take heed then maybe my words can be wrong. That's the last thing he says. They're looking at verse 10, nor grumble. I want you to say this word with me. I want you to say murmur, and I want you to say it five times with me. Ready? Go. Murmur, 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 murmur. That's exactly what the word is. It's an onomatopoeic word that says we're all saying something, but nobody can really understand what it is. But the word here is the word groaning. It means to murmur, to do it barely in an audible way, and it means that we do it in a way to communicate our dissatisfaction with something. Mom, what are we having for dinner? Green beans. So God was so angry about their complaints and their ingratitude that God sent a plague and killed 14,700 people. And that destroyer there, it says, and they were killed by the destroyer, is the same destroyer that killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians from whom they had just escaped. 
You think God only judges people who don't know him? God says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Complaining and grumbling is murmuring dissatisfaction with God's will for your life. And it is a sin that God doesn't take lightly. When God's people complain, they're challenging God's grace, wisdom, and righteousness. Complaining dishonors God. The complaints, the Corinthians were complaining about this leader. They were complaining about that leader. Well, we follow Paul. Well, we follow Timothy. Well, we follow Apollos. And, and he doesn't do it like that. And they don't do it like this. Or our last pastor did it like this. And, and just complaining, complaining, complaining. Grumbling about Paul's commands. Thou shalt not commit sexual immorality. Well, good gracious, Paul, we're in the city where there's prostitutes everywhere. What do you want us to do? We know... Jacob's got the gift of, of serving, and, and I want the gift of serving, so he's better than I am, little punk. He's just complaining, right? Why, why do they get to sing on the praise team? Why, why can't I? Well, why do they always get to do that? Why don't I? I don't like the way they do the bulletins. If I was the person who did the bulletins, I'd do it this way. Man, who designed the lights in here? If I designed the lights in here, it would have been better. Just grumble, just, just complain, just, just constant, just complaining. And I'm telling you, if you don't think you're prone to this, the Bible says do what, folks? It says take heed lest you what? I remember reading a story about this wealthy contractor, and he'd finished building this prison in New York. He was super proud of it. It was super expensive, super elaborate. He was the architect. He designed every cell, designed every room, every lock, all the electronics. This guy was so proud of this new prison that he had built. But then one day, he was found guilty of forgery. And they sentenced him to serve in the very prison that he had just built. And he said this in an article back in 1993. He said this. He said, I never dreamed when I built this prison that I would one day be an inmate. Can I tell you, folks? You must not become so overconfident that you think you are not guilty of the very things that you said you would never do. I can avoid the danger of overconfidence by remember God's unconditional faithfulness my inconceivable fallenness and quickly, very quickly, lastly, I can avoid the danger of overconfidence by remembering Scripture's unchangeable factualness. Look in verse 11 and 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon the hands of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. Again, the idea is here, we, we pay attention to this example because it's written for us. So the text says, I can exercise the goodness of the Bible. I can exercise the goodness of the Bible. That's point A. In other words, th these things, Paul says, just aren't written for our example, but for our instruction. 
They've been put down in this book for you and I to read and study and hide in our heart. It's been written here, and these things that are written here are unchangeable. He says it's been written for our instruction. Instruction means to place in one's mind. So let me ask you this question. How do you think you're going to do if you aren't daily putting this book in your mind with the things you never thought you would do? If that's the reason, one of the reasons for this book is for you to get this book into your mind and into your heart that you won't sin. If you are not in this book daily, you are just overconfident. Because you think you can do it on your own. I know that sounds harsh, but God knows I'm preaching the truth. So we've got to be in this book. We've got to study it. We've got to daily seek him in this. The Bible is alive and active and able. The Spirit takes the Bible and applies it to my heart, shapes me, conforms me, and the Spirit uses this book to show me when I'm getting off into something I shouldn't be getting off into. Psalm 119 verse 11 says this. This is the unchangeable factualness of God's word. Listen, your word have I treasured in my heart that what, folks? That's true. How many of you in the room today know that to be true? I'm telling you. You can exercise the good of this book. It is meant for your good. You can do this. But then secondly, I'm here today to tell you, because Paul's telling you, you will not and I will not be excused from the gravity of the Bible. He says there, this happened and is written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Instruction is more than just ordinary teaching. It means admonition and carries the idea of warning. It's counsel given to persuade a person to change their behavior in light of coming judgment. Therefore, he says, it's, it's written for us to, to get into our minds to warn us that something's going to happen if we don't pay attention to it. To the one upon whom the end of the ages come. The end of the ages is the reference to the last days before Jesus comes back. And that is a fact, and it will not change. Jesus' church is coming back, amen? And Paul has already mentioned that when he comes back, believers are going to give an account. Here's the truth. God has said something in his word, and it's going to come to pass whether you and I believe it or not. Just because you don't believe it's true doesn't make it not true. It's going to happen. And while we may live in a very different time than those in the wilderness, we can learn something. You and I can forfeit blessings, rewards, and effectiveness and usefulness in the Lord's service by simply being overconfident and taking our liberties too far. We won't lose our salvation, but we can lose our testimony. We won't lose our salvation, but we can, use our, we can lose our usefulness and become disqualified from impacting the kingdom. Thus, verse 12, he says, therefore... Now you know why the therefore is therefore. Lest you, th you think you stand. See, the exodus was God's calling his chosen people out of their bondage in Egypt into the land he had promised them. And they were to be his witnesses to the world. And that was the race that that nation was called to run. But that nation forgot something. They forgot God's unbelievable 
His unconditional even faithfulness. And they forgot their inconceivable fallenness. And they also forgot this. God's word is unchangeable in its factualness. And God had told them, if you do this, I will do this. And it's exactly what happened. And listen to me, the Israelites were put on the shelf, disqualified. So God now turned to you and I, the Gentiles. And if you don't think we'll be disqualified too, you got another thing coming. They fell into idolatry. They fell into immorality. They rebelled against God. And Paul says, hey, listen, pay attention to what's written here. It's written for your example, because if it happened to them, church, guess what? It can happen to us. Proverbs 16, 18 says it differently. Pride goes before what? And a haughty spirit before what? It's true. You know it's true. When I'm overconfident, I'm less dependent on God's word and God's spirit, and I become careless in my living. Carelessness leads to more temptation. As it, temptation increases, resistance to sin decreases. Therefore, it's just a matter of time before you fall. I wonder if my band would come, and I just want to lead you in this last thought. We having an okay time today? This is tough. Y'all think I like preparing this stuff? God is busting me over the head all week. I didn't think I had an anger problem until I got on a tennis court this week. I'm just telling you, I'm just being real. Never had an anger problem. Man, this week, it, it, man, I'm like, where'd this come from? Take heed, lest you fall, that's where it come from. God's doing this in me is what I'm trying to tell you. I need Jesus just as much as you do, amen? Some of you better say amen because you're thinking it. Yeah, Master, you really. There's this tribe in Africa that I that I know a friend who is a missionary there who serves there, and he tells me this story. He says that that the Africans in this tribe that there's a river that kind of goes through their village, and that there are ducks that swim in the river. And he says the 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 tribe there wanted to capture these ducks to eat them. And so at first, they would just kind of go down into the river, and they would just try to swim up close to them fast enough to catch them. And, of course, the ducks could outswim them, and the ducks would just fly away. So then they got this idea. They, they said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to start floating pumpkins down the river. So they would float the pumpkins down the river, and these ducks would see the pumpkins coming, and they would just swim fast, take off, and fly and get out of Dodge. They did that week after week, just floated the pumpkins down the river. Man, it was awesome. Finally, after a couple of weeks, the ducks started seeing it, and they didn't kind of fly off at first, but when it got too close, they would fly away. A couple more weeks went by, the pumpkins came in, the ducks were like, these are just pumpkins, there ain't no need for us to do anything, and they just kind of stuck around. A couple more weeks went by, and man, the ducks got really comfortable and started even going up to the pumpkins, sniffing them and pecking them. It was awesome. And that's when the tribe hollowed out the pumpkins and put them over top of their heads and floated down the river. And then they got really close to the duck, and the duck got really close to the pumpkin. And now you know what's for lunch. Why do I tell you that? When you think you're standing, need to take heed, lest you fall. 
When you get too comfortable with sin floating down the river of your life, it's just a matter of time. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, would you just speak in this moment of invitation to call your people to the place of grace. To call them to the place where forgiveness and hope is found. And that's in the Lord Jesus. We are not able in us. But Jesus, you are. So we come to you now looking to help us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand to your feet for a moment. I want to tell you what's going to happen right now. On a day's message like today, because I've been where you're at and I still listen to sermons, so I know what this is like. Whatever it is that you're sensing and you're feeling, there's something that happens when you step out and say, I want to pray with somebody about that. There's something happening. Or if you've got off into something and you think, man, somebody would judge me if they really knew what was going down. It's going to be the exact opposite would happen. I want you to know that this right here is symbolically, we, we call this, it's symbolically an altar. And so you can come up here, you don't even have to talk to us, but you can come down here and get on your knees, you can stand, you can do whatever, and just meet with God right here. And it's so got in this special place right here, I want to come meet with you and find hope and grace and forgiveness. So whatever it is, there are people that are already up here. They're going to be here to talk with you and pray with you about whatever. But if you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted him, can I promise you that you too are going to die and suffer God's wrath? But he doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to know that Jesus has taken your place. And he wants you to leave here free and full of hope. So if you need the Lord Jesus, please come. But Kim... Would you lead us as we sing?